0: Right as the rest of the parents make their way down, we are going to be in Acts chapter 11. While well, you're making your way there, if you're not there already. Have you all ever heard the account of the uh, husband and wife who decided to take an African safari trip with their mother-in-law? No? Okay, well I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. Husband and wife were brave enough to take a trip to Africa on an African safari and bring the wife's mother along. And uh, they get there, and they've been in their safari several days. They wake up one morning, the husband and wife do, and they can't find the mother-in-law. She's not in her room, she's not in the chow hall. She's nowhere to be found on this compound, and the wife starts getting a little anxious. So they begin a little more frantically to search the compound, trying to find her. Can't find her on the compound, so they they go outside the the walls of this compound into the bush. And lo and behold, the the mother-in-law is found. The husband and wife come upon her, and the wife turns frantically to the husband because the mother-in-law is standing face-to-face with a male lion. The wife says to the husband, Honey, do something! And the husband says, Nope. The lion got himself into this mess, and he can get himself out. Laughter Now, to clarify, I have a wonderful mother-in-law who is nowhere near like that, and I would not hesitate to go on an African safari with Terry. She'd probably be pulling me out of danger. But it shows we're all familiar with people who can be difficult, right? Cantankerous. And unfortunately, um, that can spill over into the church. Sometimes relationships within the church are more strained or more difficult than those relationships outside the church and we've all experienced that though it shouldn't be that way our flesh nature can make it that way was one old saint who wrote this in a quick little poem he said one he said to live above with saints we love will certainly be glory to live below with saints we know well that's another story We're going to see a situation in the church that could have been disastrous, but ended up being glorious, and that's by God's grace. And so I love this chapter as we've been following the development and growth, both spiritually as well as numerically, of the early church. This This was an incredible test that we're about to come upon in chapter 11. Um... And it really, chapter 11 breaks down very easily and nicely into three sections. The largest section is verses 1 through 18. Um, And and most of this is going to be Peter's recounting of Acts chapter 10. If you were here last week, it will be a lot more familiar with you. Um, So we're going to move through this this passage very, very quickly, this first part, because we're familiar with it. But let's read together, beginning in Acts chapter 11... Verse 1. Luke writes this Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. He said, I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheep descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. If you would, let's pray and ask the Lord to open his word to us. Father, we thank you, as Bo and Ben both mentioned, for this time we have together in fellowship. Father, it's a time that's um, it's cherished for us, because it's a time we get to build one another up in unity and communion with, with each other. But it's also a time where we get to partake of your word, where we get to feed on it, learn from it, which is what being a disciple includes. So, Father, teach us, as only you can, your spirit we are dependent upon. To open our minds and our hearts both to understand and to receive. Father, thank you for saving us, making no distinction against us. But you receive us on the basis of faith by your grace, Lord. Not by our works, not by anything we could offer. Father, that was taken care of by Jesus and he gives it to us. So thank you. Father, we come in Jesus' name. Amen. So right from the beginning... When Peter met with Cornelius in chapter ten, it astounded. If you remember, Peter and those six companions who were with him, when they saw the Holy Spirit come upon the Gentiles the same way that it had the Jews on Pentecost, they stood amazed. We're going to pull out some details here, though, that weren't included in uh, in chapter ten. First, Peter arrives in Jerusalem after spending, if you remember. Sometime, verse 48 of chapter 10 says he remained some days with the Gentiles. He comes back to Jerusalem. We're not sure how long he stayed there in Caesarea with the Gentiles, but it was it was lengthy. That's uh, that's what Luke is indicating to us. It was enough time, in other words, that those in chapter 11 who were throughout Judea had heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So news spread. Peter stays in Caesarea, but the news doesn't stay there. It goes before Peter and spreads throughout the whole region that the Gentiles had received the gospel. They would received God's grace. This would have been earth-shattering news. And it's hard for us to really imagine how different and, and really difficult this would have been to accept. When you do Jewish studies and you look at the Levitical law, how ritualistic... And and separative those laws were upon the Jews in every way those laws of cleanness and uncleanness affected every part of their life from the common daily things to the religious things They were a part of and for the Gentiles to be accepted and included was difficult for the Jews to grasp nonetheless the news goes out and in verse 2 at some point Peter comes back up to Jerusalem And it says this, that the circumcision party criticized him. The circumcision party, it's not necessarily unbelievers, okay? In fact, these ones, I believe, are believers, based on their reaction in verse 18. But this was definitely Jews who had come to faith in Christ. Probably, if you remember back in Acts chapter 6, a great number of the priests had come to faith in Christ. Remember that? And and we were told uh, through Jewish historian Josephus that there was upwards of 8,000 priests in service in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost. And a great number of those came to faith, Luke says. So the circumcision party were probably the priests who were still very dedicated to the Jewish custom and law. They wouldn't have just broken away from that after coming to faith. What it doesn't mean is we're accustomed to think when we read about the circumcision party later on in Paul's letters that they were unbelievers. Not yet. Um, I'll leave it at that. I was going to go off on that. but. But it says they did criticize Peter. That word criticize there is a strong word. It means literally to make a distinction. That's what the word means. And it's used several places. In fact, when the Holy Spirit told Peter in Acts chapter 10, as he was on the housetop and the men arrive at the house, the Holy Spirit said, Go with those men, making no distinction. Okay, it's the same word used there. Literally, you could picture it this way, that these men drew a line in the sand and told Peter, You've crossed the line, bud. It's too far. So now there's a division, right? Right? These men were not willing yet to accept the fact that Peter had defiled himself in fellowship with these Gentiles. They needed to hear what had happened. So Peter begins to lay it out. He summarizes it for us in verses 4-15, the events of chapter 10. And I don't really, I don't think it's necessary. I'll read through it again, but there's, there's nothing new in that passage. Uh... which which gives us any new information we didn't go through already in in chapter 10. So Peter explains it to him in order. He's very direct. Here's what happened, men. He says, I was in the city uh, of Joppa praying. In a trance I saw vision. And something like the great sheep descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, it came down to me. And looking at it closely, he observed animals, beasts of prey, and reptiles and birds of the air. You remember last week that, according to Leviticus, Those animals, certain animals, were off limits to a Jew. They weren't allowed to eat them, touch them, anything. And Peter had said, I've never had that in my mouth, Lord. By no means will I do that. Peter was still under some of the law at that point. The Lord had commanded him to rise, kill, and eat. And he says in verse 8, by no means, Lord. Remember the quote last week from that pastor. You may say no and you may say Lord, but you cannot say no, Lord. Peter had made a habit... Of telling the Lord no if you remember in the Gospels he was rebuked strongly for telling the Lord by no means Lord will that happen to you and Jesus response to him was what get behind me Satan you're not mindful of the things of God Peter however changes so verse 9 the voice answered Peter second time from heaven what God has made clean do not call common and he notes that that happened three times before the sheet was drawn up in heaven And if you remember chapter 10, Peter didn't understand this vision. It was given to him, it was communicated clearly, but understanding of it had not yet come. It wouldn't come until he met with Cornelius and saw what God was actually talking about. It wasn't simply laws of dietary food uh, the Lord was after. It was the distinction, the wall of division that Paul would write about in Ephesians and Colossians that had been torn down. That's what the Lord was doing. Verse 12, the Spirit told me, and this is the key, to go with them making no distinction. So remember, Peter's recounting this in order. These men of the circumcision party needed to hear these kind of details. Okay, it was the Spirit of the Lord. Obviously, that comes with authority, right? The Spirit of the Lord said, don't make a distinction between these men. The men who had come, if you remember, they were all Romans, and one of them was a soldier, That would have been extremely difficult for a Jew to let them in the house and fellowship with them, as Peter did. But the Spirit had said, don't make a distinction. Don't draw that line in the sand, Peter. Invite them over. But then he also gives us the detail I pointed out last week in verse 12, that he had taken six brothers with him to go to Cornelius' house. How important that was that Peter had witnesses to this event, right? Right? Peter, on his own authority as an apostle, could have made this case. But the fact that six other Jews were with him to testify makes it a much stronger case. This circumcision party, and not only the circumcision, the apostles and all the brothers back at Jerusalem and Judea needed to hear this with authority. In verse 13, he says, uh, Cornelius told him, How he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. And he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So as Peter began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just just as on us at the beginning. Now here's where the new detail comes in, in verse 16 and 17. We get a glimpse of what Peter was thinking. He says this, And I remembered... The word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. What Peter is referring to is, if you go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 5, right before the Lord is taken up into heaven in glory. The, Jesus left several commandments for the disciples, right? The apostles. This was one of the statements that he had told them. John baptized you with water. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Right? And then he goes on to explain in verse 8 that they are to be his witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, all the way to the ends of the earth. And so he remembers what God had said. And he came to this conclusion in verse 17. If then God gave them the same gift as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? There's several things to note in this passage at this point that I've, I've jumped out at me. First, uh, I've already talked about that word, making a distinction. God is pressing this point home with the Jews. The Lord knew this would be the issue for the Jews to overcome. There had always been a distinction between Jew and Gentile. That was how the world was viewed. And so God constantly brings this up. Make no distinction. Make no distinction. Make no distinction. It shattered Peter's worldview, and it's about to shatter theirs. Their whole worldview is about to be reconstructed. Okay? So that's an important truth being emphasized. But what's more, Peter says in verse 17, Who am I to stand in God's way? This is the same word. Um, that he used when he said to Cornelius back in chapter 10, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing people? Internally and externally, Peter understood what God had done and was going to do. And he now, in contra, uh, contrary to how he had previously acted, Peter's now aligning himself with the Lord. Before Peter always withstood, put himself in between the Lord and what the Lord's purpose was, now Peter's getting out of the way. Who am I to withstand? He finally learned the lesson, right? That's hard for us sometimes. I know it is for me. In, in any application, sometimes I get in my flesh and I stand in the way of the Lord and what He wants to do because of my pride, whatever, the best thing to do is just get out of the way. Who am I to withstand the Lord? That's what Peter finally comes to and gets out of the way. These truths for the church And there are many, continue to carry weight for us today. There's some truths that hold application situationally, if you know what I'm talking about. This truth carries weight and application throughout generations. Every generation, I spoke about this last week, every generation is going to deal with this issue of making distinctions between groups in the church. And it is one of the most divisive things in our carnal heart that we can do. People don't talk like me. They don't look like me. They don't come from the same background and experience as me, whatever. And we come together as a body, and those things can be barriers when we let them. But what the Lord is saying is, don't make a distinction. We all come from different points of view. We all come from different backgrounds. We're all bringing something to the table, including me. Don't draw a line in the sand. I, this has become so important for me in the last several weeks. Um, I've been having this... This conversation keeps coming up. Uh, and most recently, I was talking with my brother on the phone this week. He just got back from South Korea in a ministry he works with, smuggling North Koreans out. And he was talking about how over in South Korea... Um, I'm not going to name the denomination that he ended up mainly working with, but it's a denomination we wouldn't align ourselves with. I'll say it that way. Theologically, I'd never identify myself as that. But this denomination over there was, was the one helping Ryan do this ministry. They were the ones helping Ryan care for the North Koreans, provide for the North Koreans, train the North Koreans... They were giving Ryan feedback on the Word and the sermons he was giving. He was preaching every day to him, And we started talking about how freeing of a journey it's been for me. And I've talked to many of you about this. To receive people where they're at. What happens in churches is if you come to our body and you don't believe exactly like I believe. Or you don't behave exactly like I behave or whatever. Immediately, we throw up a wall and we won't really engage with those people, right? And there's a division. Now, I'm not saying you throw out doctrinal convictions, but what I am saying is you meet people where they're at and you say, look, here's where my convictions are and here's what I believe the Word says. If you're willing to meet me at the Word, let's look at it. An invitation for people to say, okay, whatever background you're coming from, It doesn't really matter to me. What I care about more is where you at now. Are you willing to meet me at the word and move forward from there? When you have that kind of heart, there's so much freedom, there's so much joy in loving people and meeting people where they are. It's been a journey for me. By way of confession, I've not always had that heart. I used to have an extremely dogmatic heart where if you didn't align exactly with me, I probably wouldn't have fellowship with you. But the Lord's done a work in me. And I hope he does work at waypoint in the same way. It's the same kind of work that the Lord is doing with the Jews now. It's an extremely important work. So, Peter came to the right conclusion. Who was I to stand in the way of the Lord? He couldn't do it to Cornelius when it was obvious what the Lord had done in sending the Spirit to him. He couldn't stand there and look at Cornelius and say, "Uh, you're you're not really conformed to Judaistic laws yet. I can't admit you into the church. He saw what was going on. He said, who can withhold water? These men need to be baptized. They're part of the church. Last week I'd asked the question through our small groups, um, or I made the point that the real issue going on here was not that that uh, Gentiles could be included in, in the gospel. Jesus had preached that over and over and over, right? John three sixteen. For anyone who would believe on him, right, would be saved. He said in Acts one eight, right before he's taken up into heaven, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And over and over and over, you find statements like this: the gospel was not exclusive for the Jews. It came first to the Jews, but it was not exclusive for them. The covenant of Abraham said that they'd be a father of many nations, right? So they understood that point, but what the point of difference was, the Jews still held that no, before the Gentiles could be accepted in the church, they have to conform to us. Circumcision and the ritualistic laws were still under. That's why you see Paul in his later letters taking up the issue of circumcision. At this point, God has revealed, no, they don't have to conform to Judaistic laws. They are accepted on the basis of faith alone. And after this point, those who are still of the circumcision party, if they continued to insist on circumcision or keeping the law, then they were identified as not having truly accepted God's grace. That indicated at that point, okay, God's revelation has been made clear. Salvation is by faith through grace alone. If you continue to reject it, you prove yourself rejecting the gospel. And that's what Paul would take up in his letters, right? You read the book of Galatians and that's entirely what it's about. In Philippians, he says the same thing in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Beware of the dogs, beware of those who mutilate the flesh. Circumcision doesn't do anything for you with salvation. Grace does. And so if you continue to reject the revealed gospel, then they prove themselves to be false brothers. At this point, that's not the case. They needed to hear what Peter had just told them. There's an application I discern as as I read through this um, that's somewhat connected to this. We got to see a glimpse of how Peter processed what was going on. How Peter discerned the will of God. And I've seen in my life, I've seen in the church's life, we don't really talk about this. How do you discern God's will? How do you know if God wants you to do this or that? We don't teach that. Well, here's some principles I want to talk about, okay? I'll give you an example to illustrate it. I heard uh, Skip Heitzig, when I was a young Christian, speak about a man... He was teaching a home Bible study. And a man in that home Bible study uh, was getting really cozy with a certain woman in that Bible study. And several weeks into the Bible study, this man announces to the whole group, I believe that God is telling me I am to marry so-and-so. Much to everyone's surprise, because she was already married. (laughs) Obviously, that man was not discerning God's will. How do we know? Because in God's word, he's revealed what? Adultery is sin, and God would never lead you into that. But there's other cases. George Mueller, I love talking about George Mueller. How did George Mueller discern that God was specifically calling him, in fact, George Mueller of Bristol, that's where you all came from, right? (laughs) These are our new neighbors, by the way. How did George Mueller discern God was telling him to care for orphans? Well, in God's word, what does it say? That's a ministry acceptable to the Lord. Care for widows and orphans, right? There's nothing about that work that would go against God's desire and heart. George Mueller had the faith to believe that's what he wants from me specifically. There's nothing about it contrary to God's word. So here's how I've seen God work. He reveals his will... Generally, in the scripture, with general commands, right? Be holy, for I am holy is one example. Another one, care for widows and orphans out of James. Another one you could say, 1 Thessalonians 4, here's the will of God, your sanctification. Literally, God wants you to be set apart. But nowhere in scripture does he say, George Mueller, I want you to care for orphans in Bristol. You go in faith. So, God reveals His will generally to us, but He leads you into His will specifically. Think of Peter in Acts chapter 9, the end of chapter 9, right? Paul had, had been converted, peace comes upon the church. What did we find? Peter was out doing what he was told to do. Shepherd the flock, Peter. God leads him providentially to the town of Lydda. From there, people send for him to Joppa. He goes to Joppa, raises Tabitha. He finds himself at Simon Tander's house. He didn't know what God was doing up in Caesarea with Cornelius, right? But providentially, through those circumstances, he led Peter straight into his will. And boom, then God sprung the plan on him. So he'll reveal his will generally, and he'll lead you into his will specifically. Whatever his will is, it will be bolstered by God's word. It will not contradict it. But what about... There's times where there doesn't seem to be one right choice. I remember Skip talking about this when he founded Calvary Chapel. He came to Albuquerque, where the church is located. He'd been accepted to several medical schools. And he didn't know which of the two he'd narrowed it down to was God's will for him. And he would pray, and he would pray, and he would pray. But the Lord never gave him an answer. And so he reviewed how the Lord had led him up to that point. He examined his own heart. What's my desire? Is there anything sinful leading me to that desire? No, no, no. So he chose Albuquerque to go to medical school. While he's in medical school, he started a Bible study in his home, which became a 14,000 person church. He went in faith. He made a decision. Sometimes there won't be an answer clearly made for you. You look at the situation. Is there anything sinful about it? Is there anything that would go contrary to God's Word? Is there anything selfish in it? No. And God will lead you specifically into His will. Sometimes you go in faith. I'll quote quote George Mueller again. He said this, Continued uncertainty as to one's course is reason for continued waiting. If you don't know the Lord's will yet, pray, pray, pray. If you have to make a decision, hopefully you've done some praying. And you make a decision. Okay? But the Lord you can trust will not lead you astray. I also like the example of Paul in Acts chapter 16. We're not, I'm not going to spoil it, so I'm not going to give you all the details. But Paul is on his second missionary journey and he's making his way down Asia Minor and he's trying to go visit all these churches that he's already established. Right? He wants to go strengthen them. But each time he tries to get back in there, the Spirit of God prohibited him from going. And so. They kept going south, 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 find themselves in Troas. And it's there in Troas, having been forbidden to go strengthen churches, nothing wrong with that, right? Some good work. Wasn't what the the Spirit wanted him to do, though. They find themselves in Troas. A vision comes to Paul of a man in Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. Modern day Europe, the gospel goes to Europe. That's why God didn't want him going to strengthen these churches. He wanted the gospel to go to Europe. And he led him into his will specifically. Well, let's get back to our passage here, okay? Verse 18, Peter recounts everything that happened. In verse 18, it says this, When they heard these things, that's the circumcision party, the apostles, and all the brothers, when all of them heard what Peter said, they fell silent. I'm sure that the silence was prolonged. I'm sure it was a prolonged period of them just starting to understand, my goodness, how different this is going to look moving forward. They were soaking it in. Everything is about to change. That concession is the proof of God's grace transforming the Jews' hearts as well, right? Grace was breaking down those walls in them, and it needed period, it needed time. Sometimes work. In people's hearts, you've got to give time to develop. Sometimes we get short with each other in church, right? You demand change in obedience right now. And sometimes it doesn't happen. Anybody been married and experienced that? (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes work takes time. But it's happening. Because their response was this. After the silence, they glorified God. And they come to the same conclusion. Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. I love that. These men were were silent. They understood just how life changing this situation would be both for them and for the Gentiles. They're now going to be one when we've always been separate. How is this going to look? How is this going to be accomplished? I'm sure there were more questions and answers at this point, but they did not reject it. Okay, God, if this is your plan and this is what you're doing, we'll move forward. I don't know what this will look like, but I glorify you for your grace toward them. All their comforts, all their identity, their laws that they so passionately held on to were removed. I love it. So, that's the bulk of the chapter. Let's move on, though. So now Peter's going to switch back um, in verse 19 and pick up the story of the persecuted church that had been scattered. It says, in verse 19, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Um, your Bibles may say, I want to point this out. Well, hold on. Let me, uh, let me finish reading, okay? So it says, They traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. And then verse 20, But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrenia, who on, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Your Bibles uh, may say the word Hellenist there instead of Greeks. If you have the ESV, which I preach out of, it says Hellenists. Um, And this can be confusing for people because back in the earlier Acts, the Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews. Here, this is a word that's talking about Greeks, Gentiles, okay? Uh, The New American Standard Version actually translates it as Greeks or Gentiles, okay? Which is the idea. The contrast is is clear. Verse 19, the Jews who had been scattered at Stephen's persecution were preaching to Jews only. But, verse 20 says, there were some preaching to the Greeks also. Peter's setting up the contrast for us. He's not talking about Greek-speaking Jews and Hebrew-speaking Jews. He's talking about Jews and Greeks, Gentiles. Okay, So it's an important contrast to note. Um, So this group who had been scattered at Stephen's stoning... When they left, remember, when they left Jerusalem, the gospel hadn't extended out to the Greeks yet. They were only preaching to the Jews, but you can't fault them for that. They didn't know any different. They didn't know what, what had happened in the meantime. Okay? Uh, Phoenicia is modern-day Lebanon. Cyprus is, is, a, is an island about 100 miles off the coast. And Antioch uh, is, a, is a very important city. Let me pull my notes up here got a lot on it. Um, Antioch was actually the third largest city in the Roman Empire, behind Rome itself and then Alexandria. It was an incredibly wealthy city. In fact, it had down the middle of the the, uh, city a four-mile-long street that was completely paved in marble, and it was the only street in the Roman kingdom that had lights. They lit it up. It was polytheistic. They worshipped many gods. And uh, some of their gods, they worshiped very profanely or crassly. So it was a very sinful city, but it was an incredibly important city. And it was very large. Over <coughs> half a million people lived in Antio- Antioch during those times. So they had spread out all the way out to those regions. Antioch, by the way, is in Syri- modern-day Syria, uh, far north of, of Jerusalem. So the Jews had spread out that far, preaching to the Jews only. The good thing is, they're still preaching Christ, right? They're still busy about evangelizing. They limited their evangelism to the Jews. That's about to change. Men of Cyprus, verse 20 says in Cyrenea, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Greeks also. And what were they preaching? Jesus is Lord. Preaching the Lord Jesus. That is the great confession of the church, according to Paul in Romans 10. If you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that He was raised from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus is Lord. That's our message. Okay. So they came to Antioch, preaching the Lord Jesus. And what's interesting is that Luke says, the hand of the Lord was with them. Verse 21. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. He doesn't say that about the Jews who were preaching to Jews only. You don't necessarily need to conclude that God wasn't with them either. But I think Luke adds that detail that God had moved now to the Gentiles and he's blessing that ministry. It's evidence to all the church. This is the direction of God. By the way, that's a good test uh, for fellowship, right? You look at churches, you look at people who are bearing fruit, attach yourself to them. Right? The hand of the Lord is with this group. Something's going on there. But they're preaching to Greeks. Yeah, but the Lord's blessing it. Let's go. But they're preaching to Greeks. Hey, remove that barrier. The Lord's blessing. You get the idea. The hand of the Lord was with them, so much so that the report of what's going on in Antioch, verse 22, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. So they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So again, these men were not told who they were, who were preaching. Were not told if they were Jews or Greeks who were preaching. Probably they were Jews. Uh, Cyrene is is North Africa. Cyprus is that island, 100 miles off the coast there. There were probably Jews who were uh, part of the diaspora coming back, preaching. Um, We don't know that, though. They could have been Greeks. We're, We're not told who they were. But some time passes in their ministry because the report reached all the way back to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem decides to send good old Barnabas. I, at some point in, in my life, want to do a character study on Barnabas. He's a man we don't give a lot of attention to, but I, as I've studied this book and read ahead, he is pivotal in everything that happens in Acts. Absolutely pivotal. I pray for many Barnabases here. I love this man, Barnabas. The encourager. Literally his name means that son of encouragement. So what's he do? In verse 23. When he came and saw the grace of God. He was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord. With steadfast purpose. For he was a good man. Full of the Holy Spirit. And of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Verse 25 and 26. So when Barnabas... So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. So let's look at Barnabas in the description. First, he was, up. He was obviously trustworthy, right? The leaders of Jerusalem sent Barnabas. They didn't send another apostle. Remember when Philip went to Samaria and the Gospels preached to Samaritans, who did they send? Peter and John. Here they send Barnabas. It shows you how much weight Barnabas carried with the apostles themselves. Barnabas, we trust you. We trust your discernment. We trust your wisdom. Go check out what's happening. I don't know. Some commentators that I read read into this, and I don't know if we can. They read that the church at Jerusalem was doubting what was happening. But remember, Peter had just told them what God had done with him and Cornelius. And they accepted it. Then God has granted salvation, repentance to the Gentiles. So when they hear it's breaking out in Antioch also, Barnabas go. I don't think they're doubting what's going on. I think they're sending a man who they knew would build them up. I think that's what the apostles are doing. Okay? So, he was, uh, he was trustworthy. He, it was, the text says he was a good man, he was full of the Holy Spirit and who is full of faith. All descriptions, remember, uh, of the qualifications in Acts 6 for a deacon, right? Men who are servants, men who are um, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of humility, full of love for others. They were servants of the church. They're full of wisdom. They understand the faith. They have a complete trust in God in every situation. That's why I pray for many Barnabases here. They're concerned about the people of God being built up. They're not content to see the church suffering for lack of nourishment, for lack of direction, for any of that. They want to build up the body of Christ. They have a passion, a love for God's people. In fact, that's what 1 John talks about a Christian should have, right? If you don't love the brethren, you're not his. How can you not love those God loves? People full of love. Brothers, I think that's why they sent Barnabas. Here's his reaction when he gets to Antioch. He says, when he saw the grace of God. In other words, there is manifest evidence of the work of grace in their life. That's important to note. Especially as, as we're going to look at the next point here. There is some kind of evidence that Barnabas saw. And the work of grace manifested in them. Some of these evidences are obvious through scripture. Love, right? Fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. And the rest. But also, a, a mark of grace in someone's life is a changed mind. They now love the truth where once they resisted it. They now comprehend, in some degree, the truth where once they were darkened. Right? They now serve rather than be served. There's all kinds of marks of grace that become evident when someone comes to faith in Christ. You cannot claim salvation. And continue to walk in darkness that's 1st John if there's no manifest evidence of the work of grace in your heart you need to ask yourself has grace truly penetrated my heart yet here that's not the case he saw the grace of God and he was glad I love that that's so significant that first statement when he saw God's grace in these Gentiles I'm sure that worshiping all of a sudden with these Gentile believers was a brand new and different experience for Barnabas. But you know what we don't see him doing? We don't see him cutting in and saying, no, 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 this is how you got to do it, guys. He's just worshiping with them. He's glad. I'm sure their worship and style and methods were different than Barnabas. Remember, Barnabas, we're told, was a Levite. He was of the priestly line. When he sees them... You guys just worship. I'm just glad to be here. This is so cool. <laughs> I love that. And then he encourages them. Just as he always does. He encourages them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. In other words, guys, at this point, he doesn't systematically begin to teach them. He will come back and do that with, with Paul. He simply encourages them, guys, to follow the Lord. Now, this is, this is true encouragement. You know, sometimes we try and encourage each other in things we probably shouldn't be encouraging, right? For instance, we're suffering some consequence of a wrong choice or sinful choice we've made, and we come alongside each other. Oh, it's gonna be okay, guys. God loves you. That's true, He loves you. But you don't want to encourage something that's led to sin. What's Barnabas encouraging them to? Be faithful to Christ. In everything. Faithfulness to God doesn't simply mean uh, your actions outwardly. It includes that. Be faithful in mind, in your thoughts. Be faithful in your speech. Be faithful in your actions. Consecrate yourself to the Lord. Or as Peter would later write in 1 Peter 3, sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, right? That's what was being preached to them. Christ is Lord. Bring all of your life under his rule. That's what Barnabas was encouraging them in. And that includes our thoughts. It's something we don't talk about. Thought life. Paul talked about it in 2 Corinthians 10. We bring every thought captive unto the obedience of Christ, right? Because it's the transformation of mind, according to Romans 12, 1 and 2, that our outward life and person will be changed, when our mind is transformed. We bring everything under, under, under... Pardon me. (laughs) Obedience to Christ. But Barnabas goes and brings in reinforcements. I love this part. This, this to me, was the big point for me in the sermon. Okay, Verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus. Remember, Saul had been in Jerusalem. His life was spread, so they sent him away to Tarsus. That's where he's from. Now, some scholars estimate that at this point Saul had been a believer for uh, anywhere from 6 to 10 years. Okay? So he's not just a brand new believer. But at this point, at the same time he's had no one just come alongside him either. He started preaching in Damascus immediately. Then he went off to Arabia and was taught the gospel according to what he said in Galatians, through vision uh, a vision of the Lord. He comes back to Damascus, preaches there they kick him out. He has escaped through the wall. He goes to Jerusalem and preaches right where Stephen was stoned, and they try to kill him, so he's got to flee Jerusalem, and he's by himself in Tarsus. Now I'm sure he's making lots of disciples. I'm sure he's not idle. If I know Paul, I don't. I just know'm too. So. <laughs> I'm sure he wasn't idle, though. but nonetheless, he'd never had anyone come alongside him. But if you remember back in Acts chapter nine. When Saul, when everyone in Jerusalem was skeptical, is Saul really a believer or is he just trying to infiltrate the church to destroy us? Who was it that came alongside him? It was Barnabas. He said, no, I've seen Paul's change. I saw him preach at Damascus. I saw him identify with the believers there. I know who this man is. I'm sure Saul and Barnabas had had many conversations during that time of what the Lord had done. And it would have been much easier for Barnabas to go actually back to Jerusalem and bring the apostles to teach. It was closer. It It would have bolstered up the church at Jerusalem with confidence. But what's Barnabas do? He goes up to Tarsus to find Saul. And literally, this is the word when it says to look for Saul, the word means to hunt him out. Isn't that cool? This is why this is such a big point to me. I don't think, though it would be easy to read this passage and conclude that there were just so many people coming to faith in the Lord that Barnabas simply needed help. And that's why he's going to get Saul. I don't think that's all that was going on. Certainly Barnabas needed help. But if he needed many reinforcements, go to Jerusalem and get one of the 12 apostles. Right? Or three or four of them. I think there's another motive in Barnabas's heart here. He saw an opportunity not only to train up the church, but to train up Saul. This is why this blows me away. This is what I've been seeing. I shared with it a few weeks ago on Sunday night at Ned Hauk. The intentionality involved in this is where I want us to go at Waypoint. I asked us at that barbecue, and, and people that I've talked to all say the same thing. I was never taken in this manner and, and, and discipled in this way. You come to faith, you start going to church, and you've got to figure it out yourself, right? The preacher teaches you, you go to Bible studies, and you, just, you try and put it all together. But what the scriptural pattern is this, hey, let me grab hold of you, you and me. And I'm going to teach you how to pray. I'm going to teach you how to study the Word. I'm going to teach you how to be a servant. I'm going to get you plugged in. You pair yourself off. Paul wrote about it in the book of Titus. Younger men teach the older men. Older women oh, teach the younger men. Older women teach the younger women. There's an intentionality needed in Scripture. Otherwise, what happens is we come here Sunday morning, maybe Sunday night, and we go back and we hardly see each other. And that's what church has become. That's not the scriptural pattern. People were engaged intentionally in each other's lives. Barnabas goes and hunts out Saul. Why? Because this is a perfect opportunity for the apostles of the Gentiles to come learn how to disciple and teach. You need to get involved in this, Saul. Why? Because God has testified you're going to go to kings and kingdoms. You need to learn how to do it. He goes and he gets Saul. He brings him back to Antioch. And what do they do? They stay a whole year, a whole year, and meet with the church. And the result, many more people come to faith in Christ. That's the work of the church. Discipleship, teach the people. Train them up. Be intentional about it. Get involved in each other's lives. D.L. Moody, if you've ever heard of D.L. Moody, he made it a policy of his to assign new believers, brand new believers. And remember, he preached to hundreds of thousands of people. When they would come to faith, he'd give them a duty immediately. Even if it was simply handing out a bulletin, or greeting people at the door, he got them busy serving. That's so important. Obviously, you use discretion as to what you plug them into. You don't put a new believer in a position where he's going to fail. Right? Paul talks about it when people become elders. Hey, don't put a young man who's not ready in the position of leadership. He'll be tempted with the same sin of Satan and fall. You use discretion, but you get them plugged in. There's no pew sitters allowed, is the idea. What are we doing to build each other up? That's what God's concerned about. That's what He's concerned about. We've got to resist this trend if we want to be a successful, fruitful church in God's eyes, of just coming and going. If you don't know someone, meet them. Be intentional. You decide in your heart, I'm going to do this. If there's some work on your heart that you see you can do, do it. Go. Be intentional about it. That's godly fruit. And that's where we're going to be going at Waypoint. But it says this, the end of verse 26 that it was in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians a pastor uh, Griffith Thomas um, because of the loaded term Christian these days right everybody's a Christian <laughs> he, he wrote this list of questions I think is helpful to really identify what a Christian is am I a believer in Christ am I a son a daughter am I a disciple learning am I a saint Consecrated? Am I a servant working? Am I faithful? Am I one of the brethren filled with love for them? Am I a friend? Am I one of his beloved? Am I one of his heirs? Am I one of his very own? I think that's a helpful distinction because what it does, it shows you how significant the name Christian really is. Listen to this quote by a pastor, a priest in. London during Spurgeon's day, Joseph Parker said this: "By Christians, I understand Christ followers, Christ lovers, Christ worshipers Christ ones. Were we what we ought to be in integrity, in simplicity, and in equity of soul, there should be no nobler designation known amongst man, and no other should be needed. The one name that we ought to have is Christian." What's interesting to note in this passage. Is that the name Christian was not taken up by the Christians themselves. They didn't give themselves that name. It's where they were first called Christians. In other words, the residents of Antioch who were not Christians began to recognize in this group of people they're being separated out. They're not Jews. Not practicing Judaism. But they're not Greeks either. It was them who identified them as Christians. I heard this illustration. You might have heard of St. Francis of Assisi. He said one day to one of his young followers at the monastery, Let us go down to the town and preach. The novice delighted at being singled out to be the companion of Francis obeyed with enthusiasm. So they passed through the main streets of the town. They turned down all the byways and alleys. They covered the whole city. And then they made their way into the suburbs of the city. And at great length, they finally returned back to their monastery. And as they approached the gate, the young man reminded Francis of their original intention, saying, you've forgotten, Father, that we were supposed to go preach. To which Francis replied, my son, we have preached. We were preaching while we were walking. We have been seen by many. Our behavior has been closely watched. It was thus that we preached our morning sermon. It is of no use, my son, to walk anywhere to preach unless we preach everywhere we walk. Now I understand the distinction. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ, right? They've got to hear the gospel. But this is an equally true reality. They've got to see the gospel in us. That's the point. Mahatma Gandhi, you've heard of. He actually, at one point in his life, seriously considered becoming a Christian. But he didn't. Because he said, I like Christ, but I don't like his followers. E. Stanley Jones was a missionary in India who approached him and asked him, how can the gospel, how can Christianity be impactful in India? And you're looking at his response. He said this, I would suggest first that all of you Christians begin to live more like Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not one in the business of beating up the church. I don't like doing that. There are many churches today who make it a habit of just beating church up, right? For who they are. Guys, we're sinful. I get that. I'm one who wants to bear with us. We're going to grow together. But at the same time, this is an awful reality that's true. That we must confess and turn from. We've got to practice what we preach. Christ loves the church. He loves us so much he's not willing to let us stay where we're at. So the last part, we'll finish here. Verse 27 through the end of the chapter. In these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Here is the first time we actually see in Scripture the office of prophet being operated in. Remember in Ephesians 4, Paul said, God gave first to the church apostles, then prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Here's the first office of apostle we actually see being operated. One of them is named Agabus. Agabus. And he prophesied by the Spirit that a famine would affect the entire world. That would be the Roman world. And we're told that it took place in the reign of Claudius, which, as you see up there on your screen, Claudius reigned from 41 to 54 AD. So Luke narrows it down pretty good for us. In fact, most scholars and historians believe that this famine took place during uh, AD 45 and 46. There were actually several famines during his reign. But here's the importance of this. Agabus, who was a Jew, prophesied this famine would affect everyone. And it was the Gentile church who said, We need to help our brothers. Is this not the greatest proof of their faith? They cared and had concern for the well being of their brother. They'd never met him. They were Jews. But they loved him. And they determined, I'm going to help them to whatever ability I can. Right? In proportion to their means and ability is what the text says. They sent relief to the brothers by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. I love the Gentile response here. It's come full circle, if you missed it. It was the Jews in Jerusalem hesitant to accept them. They hear of the grace of God and they accept it. But what a greater testimony when the Gentiles themselves in turn come back with love. Here's something to help you. That's probably the greatest testimony. Maybe even more so than Peter's words. Right? Maybe even more so than Peter's words. I want to summarize since chapter 6. What's happened. Because this is so cool. I know that's probably small for y'all. I had a lot to say and I didn't want to split it up. Hey, it's hard to summarize five chapters in one little paragraph. So, Luke opens up chapter 11, noting Stephen's death, which led to persecutions, which put Saul, the chief persecutor, on the path to Damascus, where he was converted and came back to Jerusalem, giving the church rest, which got Peter out visiting the churches, where the Lord then led him to Joppa, and then to Caesarea, bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, inspiring those men to come preach, these men in Acts 11 to preach to the Gentiles in Antioch, which led Barnabas to investigate and then go get Saul to help back in Antioch, building up the church he tried to destroy. Paul then reconnects the church he scattered with the church in Jerusalem by bringing their offering from Antioch. See the providence of God in that? And then what's going to follow from here is Paul and Barnabas in chapter 13 will be sent out from Antioch on their first missionary journey. You see the providential hand of God in this, bringing everything full circle, making it one body. This is incredible. It's so cool. (laughs) It's a good place to end. I'll invite the worship team back up. We're going to sing one last song. Let me pray. Father, I thank you. This has been such a good passage to see how you overcame that division that existed. You overcame it with grace. Father, there will always exist differences in the church. Not one of us is at the same place spiritually or in our understanding even of things. So, Father, we just ask you, give us grace to be humble. Fill our hearts with love for one another because love overcomes many things. And love bears with one another. Father, help us to have the attitude of, hey, I know I'm coming at something differently. I've got a lot of cultural baggage I'm bringing to the table. But would you meet me at the word? Father, for those who are more mature in this body, give them a heart to want to help those who are younger. Father, give them strength to do it. May we not just think about doing good. Father, show us where we can plug in. Create new ministry, Lord, in the hearts of people. Because it doesn't always have to be planned like we usually approach it. Ministry is birthed in the hearts of people as they see the need. And your spirit leads us onward to do it. And that's what we see here. Come full circle. The Gentiles see the need of their suffering brothers and then give back because their hearts are full of the love of Christ. They're one with them. And you've made it so. Help us have that attitude with each other. We are one body. And we're committed to each other in love. And we're going to bear with it. We're going to teach one another we're going to remain faithful to the Lord. Father, we thank you for the grace you've given us. We worship you now, Lord.